the book of Jonah. We're going to read chapters 3 and 4. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. And the king issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But... It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord, and he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to live than to die. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? So Jonah went out from the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself. And he sat there under the shade until he could see what become of the city. Now the Lord God had appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plants so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is God's word. Amen. Each week we are examining a sample of prophetic writing from each of the Old Testament prophets. And what God does is he employs these prophets to to intervene in the lives of people. And he usually employs them, uses them, through a well-timed word given to God's people. Sometimes, however, God gets his message across through a, a demonstration In Jeremiah, for example, we're going to see that God asked his prophet Jeremiah to actually break some fine china to demonstrate, 
hey, people, this is what I'm going to do to you if you don't turn to me. I'm going to break you. And so they had this visual to see and help them repent, to help them be motivated to turn back to God. God intervenes also through a message of a prophet's life. And that's what we see with Jonah. Jonah's life is his message to us. And and this occurs with only one other prophet, the prophet Hosea. And so Hosea's life and Jonah's life act like living parables, if you will. Now, a parable is a story with a point so that the listener figures it out. Normally, in a story with a point, the author gives you the point. He gives you the moral at the end of the story, right? Well, a parable usually is told so that the listener says, aha, I figured it out. Because as we listen to the story, we do so alongside our own lives, and the story sort of catches us in our tracks. And we stop, and we kind of reassess everything in our lives. That's what a parable does. And that is Jonah's life, a living parable. This helps us understand another unique aspect of Jonah. And that is, you may have noticed, it's a story that ends rather abruptly, doesn't it? It just sort of stops. There's no happy ending. There's no sad ending. It's just a rhetorical question at the end. Just an ending in which God says to a frustrated man, you pity a plant, should not I pity this great city of Nineveh? So we are meant to to be stopped in our tracks Say, wait a minute, what's going on here? We're meant to, to kind of reassess our lives according to this idea, this issue of pity. You pity this plant, I pity people. And it's like God is turning to the readers and says, what about you? Pity towards others. Now, what is pity? It's really a wonderfully important word, but almost never used in modern parlance because it's used either critically when we talk about self-pity And no one wants to think they exercise self-pity. Or with a hint of condescension, right? When someone says, oh, what a pity, right? And and you're kind of like, uh, do you really feel bad for me? But pity, according to the uh, Webster's Dictionary, is sympathetic sorrow that would move someone to action. A synonym would be like compassion. Or if you're South African, shame, 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 right? But... Pity more specifically as it's used in the Bible, I I would characterize this way. It's strength sacrificially moving towards weakness. It's someone who's in a position of strength sacrificially moving towards weakness. It's like when we say and actually mean, my heart goes out to you, right? Because you have a heart that's whole and your heart is going out to someone whose heart is broken, wanting to fix it, wanting to help restore it. And I believe the Holy Spirit's aim in giving Jonah to us as this sort of living parable is to help us see that we don't yet pity the way we ought. And and recognizing that we all fall short, thankfully, God is not finished with us. He he wants to, to purify our pity, our compassion, and our love for others. And so, in a nutshell, if you remember no other phrase from today's sermon, remember this. This is the message in a nutshell. God intervenes to purify our pity. God intervenes to purify our pity. Just like he does with Jonah. He intervenes in Jonah's life to purify Jonah's pity towards others. And now he does that towards us. So in our story, you will notice three types of pity that are present. 
and one type that is missing. And what's ironic is the one kind of pity that's missing in our story is the most glaringly obvious of them all, right? Pity from one human being to another. Pity towards others, right? It's what we see at the end of the story. We're like, Jonah, how could you not care about these people? So what we're going to do this morning is spend some time unpacking the three types of pity that we do see in our story, in our passage, and then we're going to circle back to show how God uses those three types of pity to help us as human beings develop the one type missing, that, that love for others, that pity and compassion towards other people. So first, we're going to start with God's pity. That's the pity that dominates the story, and we see first in this story. In the first half of the 8th century B.C., God intervenes to show pity to two rebels, at least two, two that we know of. One is Jonah, who represents God's people, and the other is Nineveh, which represents Assyria. It's the capital of this kingdom of Assyria. God's pitiful, literally pitiful intervention in Jonah's life begins in Jonah chapter 1, which is the half of Jonah's story with which most of us are familiar. God asked Jonah to go to a people who presented the greatest known threat at that time to Israel. The rumors had already reached God's people about how terrible the Assyrian armies really were. The Assyrian kingdom was, especially its capital, Nineveh. Jonah is so afraid, so contrary to God's command, he flees, going in the opposite direction of Nineveh towards the ocean, hops in a boat. God is understandably not happy that he's disobeyed. So he gives out like a big sigh, ah, causing wind and waves. That's how I imagine it, causing the wind and waves to come up. And no one's sure what's going on, especially the boat's captain. So they ask around what's happened. Finally, Jonah can understand, hey, I do know what's going on here. So Jonah offers to get thrown overboard. And sure enough, he gets thrown overboard, and the sea gets calm, like seven-mile beach calm. God appoints then for Jonah to be swallowed by an aquatic beast, some sort of fish that we call it here, but it's really, it's really a larger term for an aquatic beast, probably a whale, a sperm whale maybe. And having been swallowed whole by a whale, most likely, Jonah understandably sits in this whale's belly and cries out to God for help. Because who wouldn't if you're in an animal and still alive? So he cries out to God for help. And in chapter 2, verse 10, we read, And the Lord spoke to the fish and had vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Even though he had rebelled against God, gone in the opposite direction, directly said, God, I don't want anything to do with you. God still raises Jonah from the dead. God's undeserved pity towards rebels is the central theme of this book. And we see it continue on. Next towards a nation known for its killing. Having become a great power, dominating most of the Middle East, the Assyrians really became what historians call the the world's first military power. Military nation. They loved war. They were renowned for killing any living thing that came on their warpath. Men, women, children, animals didn't matter. They loved to kill it. Some empires take pride in power like Rome did. Some empires took pride in riches like the Persians. 
Some took pride in, in, in learning and knowledge like the Greeks. But the Assyrians took pride in war and taking human life. Life created by God in his image. So God could be understandably furious. And yet, God reaches out. Yet, they hear but a word from the true God of Israel. Right? One sentence. It's not even a good word. It's a word of judgment. Hey, your city's going to be destroyed. There's not even a caveat like, hey, unless... (laughs) It's just a word of judgment. And they hear it, and they humble themselves, don't they? They repent, they reach out, and God takes pity upon them. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. You read chapter 4, verse 1. Every once in a while, you still witness this in society. It's rare, but you still witness it. Um, Like a teenager who tells a wicked lie not knowing his mom stands right behind her. Her mom stands right behind her. Or, or a, a, a sports player who blatantly disregards his coach's orders. Or an addict who's blowing alone on his addiction, alone given by his most loyal and maybe last friend. And you expect that mom, that coach, that friend to finally draw the line and lay down that firm justice. Oh, no, you don't. No longer. And yet Jonah, having been saved from a whale, gets angry at the compassion of his God. And you're like, really, Jonah? Really? Boy, better pick out a coffin, right? Like, this is over. And yet God continues to pour out pity. Strength, he kicks his strength and he moves towards weakness. His response to Jonah in chapter 4, verse 4, is compassionate. He doesn't strike him down. He doesn't put him in a coffin. Chapter 4, verse 4, it's a searching question. Jonah, do you do well to be angry? God is putting Jonah on the couch, acting like a, a gentle counselor, saying, Jonah, think about this. Think about how this might benefit you. Now, the word translated anger is a unique word here. It's hara which literally means to burn. Think about that. God is recognizing Jonah is self-destructing here. He's taken a match to his own life. He's arsoning his own life here. He's burning. And so he asks a gentle question. Do you do well to be angry? Then Jonah goes outside the city, and he makes a booth so he can hopefully watch Nineveh burn. Now this booth that he made were made out of these shrub plants whose leaves would eventually wither. So they probably withered in the heat, so God provides a ca- probably a castor vine or a gourd plant to shade Jonah. Because the mean temperature in Mesopotamia, 110 degrees. You think this is hot in here? It is, <laughs> admittedly. Maybe it's fitting. God provides shade for Jonah. Undeserved grace. Something God points out when he says, hey, you did not labor for this, Jonah. You didn't make that plant grow. It was me. There's a second kind of pity. Jonah demonstrates it. Jonah demonstrates that second type of pity in our passage, and it's self-pity. Assyria had conquered the Middle East, most of it, but not yet Israel. That would happen in another 40 to 50 years in the time of Jonah. But as you can see from this map above me, the threat from Assyria was real. They're in the green, by the way. Pretty serious. You see Israel kind of right below them. 
probably next on the military map. You might find it weird that we started with the uh, prophet Jonah. He's not the first prophet up in the Old Testament. That honor belongs to Isaiah. But we did so because we divided the next four months of this series chronologically. It begins, this, this, this time of Jonah begins a period where God is disciplining his people because they've not been true to his covenant relationship. He's made this special relationship with them, but they've rebelled against it. They haven't kept the terms of that relationship over and over and over again. So first God deports them to Assyria. Assyria rules over them. And you get a lot of prophets who speak out to God's people and say, hey, I'm warning you. God wants to speak to you. And then the Babylonians come and they rule over them. And more prophets come. And then the Persians do the same thing and more prophets come. And that's how we're kind of organizing this series. Well, Assyria started first. And at this moment in time for Jonah and for Israel, Assyria is a looming and serious and also despised threat. So Jonah fears. C.S. Lewis, remember once said that, that hate is the compensation a man gives himself for the miseries of fear. In other words, the more you fear, because fear You can't love when you fear something or someone. You compensate yourself emotionally with hate. You can see Jonah doing that. I'm a good Israelite. I I also fear, so I will hate these people. I will hate the Assyrians. I will hate the Ninevites. But of course, God saves them from a whale, so he goes. (laughs) And they repent. God pities them, and Jonah only pities himself. Read again this prayer God makes, or sorry, Jonah makes, chapter 3 here, and count up the times, the me's and the my's and the eyes of this prayer in verses 2 and 3, sorry, of chapter 4. And he prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is, this not, is, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were gracious and merciful, God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. That should be good news, Jonah. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Did you count out those me's and my's? I think they're eight, right? In the original Hebrew, it's nine. God, what about me? Think about how my going to Assyria and then being saved reflects on me and my reputation. How can I face my family? When he goes outside the city to watch Nineveh, it's in the hope that God will bring the judgment he spoke of against them. Because he only thinks about himself. You can imagine the line of thought, maybe I can still save face. Maybe God will finally judge these people. And I can go home and people will still love me and care about me. Because I haven't sided with our enemies. Guys, self-pity is so sad because it blinds us to the grace happening around us. Because we can fixate only on how it affects us. Only how we are affected. So, so we can't see God's mercy and his grace around us. We just think about self. Jonah demonstrates also the third type of pity, which I'll call stuff pity. Because God graciously gives Jonah something, a stuff, a thing, to provide him comfort, a plant. You know what Jonah's response is to that plant? Read it with me again. Jonah was exceedingly glad, verse, chapter 4, verse 6, Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant, or literally, this is how we read literally, Jonah rejoiced over the plant with great rejoicing. This is the first time Jonah is happy. He wasn't happy 
after being rescued from certain death. He wasn't happy at this mass revival of repentance that happens towards people made in God's image. It's a true revival. Jesus refers to them in the New Testament. that The people of Nineveh will rise up and judge. He's not happy about that. His happiness is located in a thing. A thing that will bring him maximum comfort to his life. The Bible calls this idolatry. It's a good thing. A plant is a good thing. But Jonah's made it into an ultimate thing. It's loving something good like it's God. Your love gets out of order. You can't see clearly. You can't even rejoice anymore at God's active goodness at work in your neighbor, co-worker, and your family, or even towards yourself because your eyes are so enamored with that something, that glittery thing that your heart's attracted to. We can tell this plant and this comfort the comfort it produced has become Jonah's ultimate thing. Because when it's taken away, what does he say? I want to die. I'd rather die than not have my plant. So, so we see in this passage three types of pity. God's self and stuff. But one type is clearly missing. Pity for others. Pity from human to human. From Jonah to an entire city who is otherwise lost and separated from God, that pity is totally missing. So before we go any further, I want to do something. I'm curious to hear your impression of Jonah. Now that we've gotten past the the neat story about the whale and all that, which we typically hear, what's your impression, honest impression of Jonah? So up on the screen, you're going to see my phone number. And what I'd like you to do is get your phone and text Describe Jonah in one or, or maximum two words. All right, one or two words, two words at the most. So text to me your description of Jonah in one or at most two words. And if you're listening to this or our podcast or radio, just think about it in your head. But one or two words that describe Jonah. All right, you ready? Go for it. I'll give you 45 seconds. Okay. Wonderful. I'm going to just go and get started because that is a lot. Um, here are some. Uh, selfish child. Diva. Coward. Selfish, selfish, selfish. Someone give a thumbs up sign. I don't know. That seems inappropriate. Um, excessively selfish. Brat. Fearful, weak. Brat, conceited, dramatic, selfish. Pathetic, misguided, stubborn, clueless, poor me, drama king, self-centered. Wonderful. Uh, this week, my family and I did this exercise together. We told the story of Jonah. I asked him to write down on a piece of paper. I'm going to continue to get these. Um, and here's what we came up with. Arrogant, ignorant. Here's some more fickle and bitter. Now, I want you to consider how you judge Jonah. And we're laughing about it, et cetera. And, and, and I, this, you know, I had a similar response. How have you judged Jonah? But isn't that how Jonah judged the Ninevites? Selfish, arrogant, pathetic that they live like that. What this parable is meant to show us is that we are Jonah. I am Jonah. We get to this end of the story and our emotion is, man, how could he? And yet aren't we treating Jonah 
the same way Jonah treated the Ninevites. How could they, God? Remember what I told you at the beginning. Our story ends without a proper ending because Jonah's a living parable. We are meant to hear the message and, in a sense, supply the ending ourselves to the story. Our lives are the ending to the story. So God intervenes here with a message that's meant to stop us in our tracks and say, wait a minute, I'm having the same feelings about Jonah that Jonah must have had towards the Ninevites. That's a problem. Think about it in your life. You condemn racism, but do you also condemn the racist? Who are you to do that? You maybe abhor xenophobia, right? the fear of foreigners, and yet do you also abhor the xenophobe? You disagree with acts of homosexuality. Do you also despise the homosexual? In your actions, in your attitude, you, you utterly hate intolerance, but you also hate intolerant people? Right? Are you tolerant to all but that intolerant person, ironically? You want nothing to do with hypocrisy, but you also want nothing to do with hypocrites. You tire of ingratitude shown by younger generations, but you also tire of ingrates. We have such persons in our lives, right? Such persons who intermingle with us at work and in our neighborhoods. And our attitude is, I just, just not that person, God, not that person. And that's where Jonah's story stops us in our tracks. Jonah is xenophobic. He's intolerant. He's ungrateful. And so we feel towards him anger, judgment, disappointment as a xenophobe, intolerant, and great. In our final valuation, we no longer put ourselves in his shoes and see ourselves in him, and yet Jonah is me. Which means I'm not yet there. I'm not yet purified in my pity, in my compassion towards others. But God's word doesn't leave us hanging without supplying help. Uh, the, the pity from human to human is missing in our story, and to some extent from our lives, as we've just seen, as we've just been stopped in our tracks and noticed, pity is also present in our story. So I want to go back and relook at the three types of pity and frame each type in the form of a question that God might use to help purify our pity, our compassion, and our love, especially towards those who are hard to love. Okay, so let's go back and look at God's pity again. Let's revisit it. When we consider work alongside, relate to those who are difficult to love in our lives or surrounding our lives, God may be asking, yeah, but do you remember? Or don't you remember, I should say? Jonah, though utterly rebellious, saying no to God, no God, with his, with his thoughts, with his words, and with his life, God rescued him and raised him from death to life. And as he looked at Nineveh, God was surely nudging him. Jonah, don't you remember, though? Don't you remember the whale? In the New Testament, a servant of Jesus named the Apostle Paul, with his friend Titus, went and preached the good news about Jesus to this island called Crete. Now, Cretans, like, which is a word that still kind of circulates today, just barely, Cretans were known to be liars, gluttons, lazy. Even the word Crete was a common expression in the Greco-Roman days. It meant to, to lie or to cheat, to Crete someone. If you know it's bad, when you become a byword, a verb, to lie or to cheat. And these were the people who were in, or at least around, Titus' church. Right? And you can imagine Titus being like, oh yeah, but you know, talking about you know this church, Paul. You know what I'm dealing with. It's Cretans. So Paul reminds them, Titus chapter 3, 
verses 3 through 5. Listen to this. You can almost hear Paul saying, yeah, but Titus, at one time, here we go, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We too lived in malice and envy. We were being hated. We hated one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Not because we earned it with God, or we finally turned it around, or we got it right, but because God freely loved us as a gift. Now listen, like Crete, my church is full of... Just kidding, I'm saying that. But, I, but there are, I mean, honestly, a handful of persons, right? A handful of persons, not any of you, of course. A handful of persons that, that I struggle not to prejudge. And that I assume that they're doing what they're doing because they mean to be irritable. They mean to be annoying. They're doing it on purpose. Hard to love. And, and I can sense God saying to me this week, Ryan, but you too are foolish. You too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved. All kinds of passions and pleasures, right? Ryan, you too scoffed at authority. You laughed off wisdom. You cared and loved stuff more than you loved people. But then the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared in your life, not because of anything you did, because God loved you. And that should change us. And perhaps you're here this morning, and you're pretty good about pitting, about showing compassion and caring for people and, and sort of understanding what it's like to walk in their shoes but your pity has not yet been purified, as you just found out. It's hard to love the unlovable, the intolerant, the xenophobic, those who exercise bigotry, and yet you also don't know Jesus, and that's your problem. Only the free forgiveness of Jesus can purify you to love someone who's like an enemy. To love people who are intolerable, to love people who are ingrates, if you will, practicing gratitude, to love people who are prejudiced. Someone has to experience all that on your behalf, and that was Jesus. He experienced intolerance to the uttermost when he undeservedly died for our sin. And so you have that feeling sometimes, yeah, but I'm a pretty loving person, but not towards those people. And you want to become a more loving person. The only way you can do that is through Jesus Christ. Because that sense of justice, that wait a minute, how do those people get get away with that? Well, guess what? No one did get away with it. Jesus Christ took on that intolerance. He took on that hatred when he went to the cross for you. And that's the only way your love can be purified. That you can love to the uttermost that you've always wanted to love is through Jesus. So I want to encourage you, maybe today's the day where you trust Jesus because he can purify and he alone your love. Consider also, again, self-pity. That's God's pity. Consider also against self-pity. It's so hard to see. Jonah prays, and we can hear it, but, but what about me? Have you forgotten my wants and my needs? Self-pity is one of the hardest things to see. We don't recognize it. It grows so large in our life. God asked Jonah, do you do well to be angry? He might similarly ask us about our self-pity. How's that working out for you? If you feel constantly surrounded by intolerable people, well, how's that attitude working out for you? If you think of them as just intolerable. Rather, won't I do well to see outside myself, first see Jesus, and then see others. To, to put myself in their shoes, to be reminded, this person is coming to me with hurts from their childhood. This person is coming to me 
perhaps with a, a pain they just experienced. This person is, is, is coming to me, perhaps with loneliness from the night before, by themselves. No one comes to us with a blank slate. They come muddied. They come stained by life. Then there's stuff pity. What is that thing in my life? Here's the question. What is that thing in my life that provides me maximum comfort? For Jonah, it was a shade-giving plant, which might sound pretty simple, agriculturally very simple, but Jonah didn't have access to a luxury car, to a boat docked on the canal, to a high-paying job that makes me feel super important. And here's a, here's a hint. You'll never say like Jonah, man, I'd rather die than go without that thing. You'll never say it out loud. I'd rather die. But you get, even now, agitated at the thought of someone taking that thing from you. It would bother you. It would eat at you. It would be hard to live life without it, wouldn't it? Think of someone taking it from you right now. What does that do to us? And the problem is we often pity these things. When they're vulnerable, we move towards them with strength. We think of them. We care for them. We want to fix them. We want to spend on those things. We only have so much love left. And that love goes to the people who love us back. But where's the love for people who are hard to love? There isn't any love for them. Our basest feelings about such people come out in those moments because our highest love is already given to that stuff, to that thing I can't live without. But guys, God can expel this over-love for lesser things with his ultimate thing, Jesus Christ, who, if you would but trust him, promises to raise you from death to life like he did to Jonah. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for intervening in our lives this morning through the living parable of Jonah. I I felt myself this week, and I think hopefully all of us did, getting caught. Only a couple of us texted me, I see myself. I'm Jonah. But God, I see it. The same intolerance, the same xenophobia, the same prejudice that Jonah showed towards the Assyrians, we show so often to others. Help please purify our love. Help us remember how you pitied us, how you took us from a place where we were unloving, we were full of anger, or just full of pride, and you loved us undeservingly. God, remind us how how foolish it is, Father, to love other things above others who need it. And Father, how unwise it is, how hurtful it is to our own lives and our own attitude. God, to just pity ourselves, to just feel sorry for ourselves and all the bad people and all the suffering people and all the dysfunctional people you've brought into our lives. When you want to use us to show them Jesus and his unbelievable compassion. So please use us. Purify our pity today. In Jesus' name, amen.